0: There are really two worst case scenarios when it comes to passive investing. The first is a total loss of all your cash, which is the ultimate risk for any investment, no matter how rare that actually can be. And the second is that that passive investment turns into an active investment that still loses money. Today's guest, Jaspreet Baveja will talk about his diverse experience as a limited partner in multiple asset classes and how his worst deal turned into one of the worst case passive investing scenarios and how you can avoid pitfall deals like this. This is the Passive Real Estate Strategies Podcast, where we educate career-driven individuals who have tapped out their earning potential, learn about passive real estate investing so you can continue building your wealth without compromising your time or taking on more responsibilities. I'm your host and managing partner at Realm Investors, a multifamily syndication group who has helped multiply millions of dollars for our passive investors. Thanks for tuning in and let's get on with the show. Hey investors, welcome back to another episode of Passive Real Estate Strategies. Today, I am sitting down with Jess Breitz, Baveja. Now, just Breed and I are in a few mastermind groups. We've talked a couple times about different deals we're working, different markets, Uh, super, super smart guy. Um, He's been full time in real estate investing since 2019, quit his job as a healthcare regulatory compliance consultant to do this, and has been an LP, a limited partner in seven deals so far, and is also actively a general partner on the active side um, now through a few deals as well. So just for you, we are really excited to have you here and talk about your experience. Perfect. Thank you for having me. Same here. Hey, so tell us, you know, what really drew you to getting started as a, a limited partner? It sounded like the limited partnership came first.
1: Yeah, it did. I was still a full-time employee when I got into the limited partnership side. So it was definitely attractive to not have to add yet another thing to manage and track on my own end. Yep. And uh yeah, still be able to invest my money and still generate great returns hopefully with the right <laughs> right team. Yeah. And so that's what drew me to the LP side first.
0: Yeah. And so uh what made you if that was so appealing about being a limited partner, what made you I guess kind of do the total opposite thing and how and how jump in on the
1: active side as well? I think it's all about sort of where you are in life. At that point I had I was just getting major fatigue from my full-time job, I had two extremely young kids, and uh, I owned a couple of properties out here in California, and I owned a couple of properties in Indianapolis as an investor, so I was flipping, I was lending, I was managing the job, the family life, and it was just too much to say, I'm not going to add on another active role but I still love the real estate investing space. So I went down the LP side. And then eventually when I quit my job, I, let, I sold off most of my assets and took some time to travel probably like 10 countries. We said, okay, you know what? I'm back in the zone where I can start focusing on more things. Let's let's take more on. Mm-hmm. And then I jumped back onto the active side, but more on the syndications and uh, private lending are the two main active sides that I'm on
0: okay is that what you were involved in as an lp as
1: well private private money lending and were they syndication no. funds or reits or what was your no. so my lp side was uh syndications one yeah. of them i mean they were all real estate tied but not just buying apartment complexes or stuff so uh, apartment complex in hayward just like we talked about hayward um so i have uh, some money invested there then uh, some office space that's rented out to north of grunham in uh, colorado then a warehouse that's leased out to eight or ten different marijuana operators also in colorado then a self-storage facility that was being converted from just a raw warehouse in ohio and so you're all on multifamily the oh yeah multifamily deal in texas so it was it was just trying to make sure that I'm well diversified. Even within real estate, there's all, all these different strategies. And that's what I love about real estate investing. You're not, you're not tied to, I'm going to buy a house and put it on rent and collect yeah. checks every month and deal with all and tenants. It's just, there's so much more to real estate than that. Yeah. And I think that that's something that is, a lot of people don't really step into until
0: they're way more seasoned. Did you find it difficult to, I guess, be educated on those because it's it's tough to go from uh being in healthcare, compliance, consulting into let's say multifamily. And I say multifamily because that's what most people think of when they think of syndications, because we right. get it. We've lived in apartments most likely. We see apartments everywhere we go, we kind of understand how they work, but yeah. then make the leap into warehouses and then in office spaces, then in medical centers, then in a private money and it tends to come a little bit further down the line, find it difficult to I guess jump in. Right away, was there a big learning curve for you, or did you have experience in this stuff in the past, or how did you kind of manage that? Not
1: really. I didn't have any experience in any of those real estate classes, asset classes. But I, so when, when you do a deal with compliance, there's a lot of data coming at you, there's a lot of regulations, there's a lot of minutiae in details that you have to focus on. So I got really good at being able to identify key metrics or key things that I needed to look for and say, all right, as long as these requirements are met and individually, these are the sort of things I, I should focus on. How much work has this person done in this kind of asset class before? How do they deliver? And what's the likelihood of success here? What are they claiming are the metrics they're tracking? And then just diving through the data. It's you know, And, and I think it's easier because I... I tried to invest smaller amounts into each of these rather than, oh, I'm going to put a quarter million here and a quarter million there, right? It's not one of those things where I was wiring masses amounts of money, at least relatively speaking. Uh And so I think I found it a little bit easier to just say, all right, I'm going to go in for smaller dollar amounts and go for those minimum investments, but diversify just so I understand the spaces that I like the most, And then as I get to the point where I can invest more, I will then at least know, hey, I I tried out these investment classes, these syndication types, these different operators in these different markets. And I can then say, all right, well, who who was the best at what they said their business plan was going to do? Who delivered the best, the quickest? And then I will focus more on that as I keep growing my investable dollars.
0: Okay. And so when you were first starting out, it sounds like you're I don't know if this is true or not, or this is what I kind of got from that conversation is you can't quite understand all of these things all at once, right? So no. you have to pick the, you know, I go by the 80-20 rule. Hey, what are the 20% of things I absolutely need to have down? Yeah, like most of the way there. Then there's some things you just will never learn until you get in and do a couple of deals, right? Or, exactly. and Whether active or passive. So what are some of those things? Like, like, what was that 20% that you knew, hey, no matter what I invest in, I need to know x y and z it sounds like the operator you maybe that yeah, was key more on them and their experience in the assets yes. self and then yes asset. okay what kind of things were you looking for specifically sound like you said experience um, yeah
1: how many deals have they done of this type before are they in the similar markets that they're trying to do it in now what kind of market analysis have they done for what they're trying to do so can they show me If it is all about self-storage, well, then how many average units are vacant around this neighborhoods or how much demand is there? What kind of foot traffic is there? Just basic things that you're like, all right, well, if I I drive by certain self-storage facilities or whatever, and they always happen to be on the corner of highways, they happen to be next to Costco's, next to big community centers. So is this something that you're hitting? Because that's what I see all these successful things do just from my driving around and never paying attention. Yep. Right. And they're like, oh, yes, just breathe. We do that. And look at all this analysis we have from these third parties. Okay. Sounds great. Perfect. Good. That's done. And then I think a uh, return rate, right? Like how long is it going to take for my money to come back and how, uh, what equity multiple is it going to come back at? And, uh, Definitely the experience of the operator matters the most to me uh, beyond the assets, but okay. ED20. We'll were you diving
0: in a lot to this specific underwriting of that? Or were you saying more, hey, this operator, I've really vetted them. I love the way they're answering our questions. I love their experience. They're in the markets. So, I, you know, I kind of trust their underwriting. I'm not going to go dig into their underwriting. Or did you look at underwriting? Did you learn about underwriting? I'm um, that's a big obstacle for a lot of people too, is they get this financial reaction and they're like, I don't know. All the cells are green. Looks good to me. They don't really know what it is. Was that you or were you kind of leaning on? I feel very confident in the operator and what they've had to say
1: and the work they've already done and Mm -hmm. the read they've done. So I, I feel very confident they have that down. What was your take? I think that was more of my take than let's deep dive into every one of these cells and background formulas and validate everything. And I didn't do all that in the beginning. I think for me, it was more about vetting the operator getting the basics of what that asset class should be doing. What are the metrics that drive their decisions of going into this particular asset in this market? What's driving their projections? And then I think, uh, you know, I, I took the conservative approach of, okay, well, they say the range is this to this. All right, well, let's just take the lowest number in every assumption. Yeah. Highest number for expenses, lowest number for revenues, lowest number for growth, highest amount of expense growth. And let's just go down that path and see, am I still okay? Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Let's just
0: Let's do it. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of people look at too, because underwriting is, oh, it's some science, but it's a ton of art. And I think people don't realize that. Um, and we have, yeah. things sensitivity analyses, which are what you were looking at. Hey, What's the best case? What's the worst case scenario? And just for you listening, if if you did that worst case scenario in all facets, which pretty much says, hey, our incomes are the rock bottom that we project. Our expenses are the absolute highest we project. Our loan is this. It's the absolute worst case scenario. If mm. all of those worst case scenario boxes were checked and you were still, eh, you know, a little bit, you probably wouldn't lose money, but of course you're probably missing projections at that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is that a deal breaker for you? Or are you feel like, hey, you know, the odds of everything going wrong are pretty low.
1: I'm kind of willing to roll those dice. What, what was your approach? I think it all depends on a very personal level. Uh, it depends on how much of a dollar amount you're putting in versus how much dollar amounts you have available to put in. If your entire savings, your life savings are a 100 grand and you're being asked to put in a $50,000 minimum and your worst case projections make it look like you're pretty darn close to not making money at all. And you might just get your money back at the end of the deal. It may not be the best way to go. Yeah. But if you've got half a million sitting around and you're being asked for a $25,000 investment and those worst case scenario looks like you may not lose money, but you may not make as much money, then I think it's worth rolling the dice to say yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm getting into a new asset class. I'm dealing with a new operator in a new market. This will give me experience. This will give me an idea as to how underwriting really worked and, and really learn something more in the space of limited partnerships. I'm okay rolling the dice. So that's the kind of mindset I had. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it should be a very personal decision. It shouldn't be something that just says, well, as long as I don't lose money, I'm okay going into <laughs> a deal. I think as long as you are able to say tangibly say okay i'm going to gain not just money but experience Mm -hmm. a new relationship more investors that i can add to my repertoire that i can talk to and reach out to and discuss things with more operators that i can deal with networking opportunities this this is going to create for me Mm -hmm. so i think those are all the things you should take into account when putting money in with an operator especially into a new asset class or a new market or a new operator Overall,
0: i really love that that thought process because you know just like we had said before at the end of the day you will not learn everything that you want to learn. It doesn't matter what podcast you listen to, what books you're reading, what, you know, what operations you speak to. Really, once you do that first deal, that's when you're going to get flooded again with information. And that's the information that sticks. Yep. You know, that like you even if you heard it on a podcast one time, now you actually do it. Like, okay, this is what they were talking about. I kind of forgot. And then the next deal is you just know those things. So, you know, even if I'm not saying you want to, to break even or you don't want to hit projections, but there's always that aspect of, hey, I learned a lot during this deal whether it's an asset class or maybe you're like, man, I hate warehouses. I will not ever invest in another warehouse again. Okay. That's a pretty good lesson to learn that you really would never have learned without taking a dive. Right. Doing it. right? Um, so out of all the assets classes that you've been in, uh, such a diverse experience, do you have a favorite, a least favorite? Have you found, or do you, are you really excited about something? Like you see on the horizon, oh man, I could just see warehouses taking off in the future and this is why, or, or what are your thoughts?
1: I think there's a couple of different ones. I think warehouses that are more designed to be warehouses for bulk storage, like Amazon Spaces or FedEx, UPS, those kinds of things. I think they're going to continue to see growth. There's just uh, through COVID and even before COVID, we were already seeing such a massive growth in online shopping and Walmart offering their services, Amazon offering services, everybody's bringing in their new, you know, sort of membership and Get free shipping. And so all of that requires a lot of warehouse space and shipping and, and holding storage. So I, I think that's definitely going to continue to see growth. It's not going away. As long as they meet the requirement of they're in that travel corridor, they're along major highways, they're closer to docks and ports to be, be able to get shipments, I think they're going to do great. Then multifamily is one that I'm definitely the most excited about. That's, I'm a general partner in that side. and. Uh, you know, close to 90 million plus worth of assets under management and 800 units. We're in even converting hotels into multifamily space because that's where we see a lot of growth happening mm-hmm. in certain markets, whether that be because tech jobs are moving there or uh, political influences are causing a lot more people to be more favorable to that side or cost of living. There are just so many things that are driving population growth in those areas. So we said, okay, well, w- we love multifamily. Yeah. And I think office space... Is, is sort of still up in the air, because as much as employers are forcing their employees to come back, you're still seeing a good enough sort of pushback from the employee side saying, I think you said, please. Did, did I hear you say please? No? Oh, okay. Here's my resignation. piece. Yeah. All right. So that, that mentality is still so strong in the tech space and a lot of consulting space where people don't need to be in the office to get their work done been super efficient last two years so i don't know how how well i think that's going to do it's still up in the air and it may do really well in in six years from now who knows i think same with retail and commercial. There's just so many different ways, but I think I'm the most excited about multifamily. And that's where I have put all my focus now as a general partner. Hey, investor, really quickly, I hope you're enjoying the show. If you have topics
0: you want me to cover, questions you want me to answer, or guests who you think would make for a great and educational episode, email me with my email in the show notes. Let's get back to the show. Yeah. I really like uh, you know what you said about the offices. I think one thing that people are because there's this head-to-head battle right now, right? We kind of see right before our eyes of employers on one side, employees on another side yeah. uh, saying, hey, you know, we're better in office. We have this great culture in office and they have all these selling points uh, and our employees are happy when they're in office. And here's this study that we paid some consulting company to do. And that's what I've yep. And then, um, you know, a lot of people haven't truly seen an employee market. Mm-hmm. It's been an employer's market my entire generation yeah, for decades. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people have never really seen employees push back and now they are. And now employers are saying, Hey, we've had these openings and listings for a while. We're not getting great candidates. No. And now we're saying people are going to leave because there's other remote opportunities for us. So I think that's one thing too, is a lot of people were looking at offices and saying, well, employers want people back. So the, the employers are going to, they always get what they want and they have for the past couple decades. You know, I don't I don't know if that's gonna continue in the future. Oh, yeah, I, I really like that insight. So I wanna talk about some of the deals that you have invested in as an LP. Have mm-hmm. you um ever lost money on a deal, or maybe what was the deal that you really missed projections on the most if you haven't lost and how could you have if you could have prevented it? Was it a red flag you saw or was there something in the underwriting that maybe looking back you knew, okay, I probably should have paid attention to this. Or tell us about kind of your
1: your worst experience, I guess. Yeah, so the worst experience was I think I put 20,000 or maybe 25,000 into a marijuana operation facility uh, down in Southern California. And their projections were 100% a year, cash on cash for the next five years, then a sale, massive growth, all that. I said, okay, well, I'm going to project that they make one tenth of that. And am I okay with 10% a year? Sure, that seems on average with everything else I'm doing, so that's okay. Looking at their uh, their presentation document, their OM, they had stock photos from random Google image searches, named Moriarty and Holmes and all this jazz from these, you know, Sherlock Holmes stuff. And and I'm going, okay, well that's a red flag. But then I look at the entity name went online. Yep, they've existed for a while. They've done other stuff. Okay seems shady. But then my best friend of 10 plus years is like, dude, I'm putting in a quarter million. So I, I really believe it. I've been there. I've met these guys in person. I've seen the facility. I think there's going to be massive growth. Uh, CBD is going to do really well, especially distilled stuff. There's a lot more products that are coming on the market that are going to need it. Heck, coca Cola's doing it. All these people are, it's going to be massive. All right, sounds good. As long as they make 10% a year, I'm okay with it. Let's go. Well, lo and behold, the city of Salinas came down and said, Nope, sorry, we're not going to issue the permit, the final permit that you needed after everything else you've done to operate. So you're gonna have to we're gonna kick every marijuana related operation out of Salinas, period. Well, that's not any something anybody could have predicted or or underwritten for, right? That the city is just gonna come down and say, We're stopping all process, shutting down stuff. So they moved operations, didn't really do so well they continue to try to get more distillate stuff going they had their own farm so they had this massive they've got the supply chain down right they've got their own farm they've got their own transportation they have got their own distillate facility i mean what could go wrong and but unfortunately it went wrong then they finally decided to sell it after i think i got one dividend payout which was in cash because it was a marijuana operation in california so I got like $96 and something cents in an envelope in the mail to here, Yeah, <laughs> that's just saying I like that. <laughs> and never saw a dime again. But then eventually they sold the company to an actually like stock listed company, went ahead and bought them out. And instead of issuing cash dividends, which they did offer cash payouts, this was a sort of a fund of a fund that we had invested in. So we were secondary to the initial primary fund. So those primary fund investors, they got cash. And then since we were a fund of funds, we got issued stocks and they issued stock at $1.60, I think per share, in which case we would have basically evened our money out or something. And then when the deal finalized and the stocks were actually issued, the stock was worth 20 cents a share. So now we're way in the losses
0: Interesting. So and, explain um, just really quickly, fund of funds, some listeners might not quite understand that. I- explain that and, and maybe some like you
1: were in a second position there to get your money back. Can you explain that? Yeah, actually, I think we were third in line because the lender was first, the seconds were the initial investors into the fund directly, and then third were the fund of funds. And so uh, if you look at, let's say, a syndication or a fund like BlackRock and Blackstone, I mean, there's these massive multi-billion dollar funds you can go put money into. And so what do you do is, let's say they have a million dollar minimum. They say, okay, we only take checks of a million dollars at minimum. And then you say, okay, well, I don't have a million, but I got a hundred grand. And I know 15 other guys who've got at least 50 grand and a couple of guys who've got a hundred grand. I think all of us put together, we can get to a million. Mm-hmm. So that's an area you create a pool of money. And you call it a fund of fund. And you put the money in there. You get to that million minimum. And as a one entity, you go and say, hey, here's a million dollar check. We are now an investor in your fund. At that point, now it's a tertiary sort of investment. But you got your money into the deal. And whatever the distributions are, expenses are at the fund level, you manage that. And then pay everybody dividends according to whatever the amount they share they put in. So that's what a fund of funds does. And that's what we had done. We ended up firing our managers of the fund, taking over, filing returns, paying all these back taxes. I mean, it was just bad, but that's a pretty, from what I've heard, rare scenario. I've I've interviewed a
0: lot of people who invested in cumulatively, got to be several hundreds, maybe even close to a thousand deals at this point, uh, cumulatively among everybody. And I can't think of many scenarios where they fired the manager on it, and they've had to take over themselves. That's a pretty. So I'm glad for the listeners that you get to hear that that's a possibility. Yeah, albeit I'll, I'll rare, but if it's in the OMs uh, or the operating agreements, typically is what needs to happen. Yep. To you and the investors to take over.
1: What yep. kind? Of, essentially, you have to really drop the ball and almost be malicious in a sense. Um, yeah, no, they were because they actually got. They were subpoenaed. They were lawsuits were filed. Uh, the SEC came down on them. So they had more than enough, we had more than enough sort of uh, leverage to be able to say, listen, you guys have done, you guys have met the bad buy criteria on every level. You're out. Yeah. <laughs> and so and there were, they were shares that they had issued for equity shares for, oh, you got us in touch with this person. Here's equity shares. And so then we took over as managers got rid of all of the excess trim, you know, trimmed all the excess fat and only brought it down to, okay, whoever put actual money in the deals yeah, is the one that's going to get shares, Da da shares. Da, da. We did the whole cap table all over again. And so. That's the most active passive investment that I think I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Through the investor
0: pool and finding out who put in money and who was essentially illegally given a share because you can't do that. You can't just um, essentially give them. will nilly offer shares, yeah. Right, Correct. And so, yeah, that, that that's blatantly fraudulent, definitely in the back boy clause there. So well, I, I really like that story because I think part of it you could have prevented maybe just with like the a couple of the red flags you saw. And again, maybe some of those things individually aren't deal killers if they have a stock image. Like, and maybe it, it's not the best look, but if it's the only thing and everything else looks great, okay, you might overlook it. But these things co- compiled together, you know, maybe maybe you think about it again. And, and some of it you could not have foreseen. But that's one thing to always think about is what are the regulations around it? That's one of the reasons why I- I'm very hesitant to do Airbnb anything, because just one mm-hmm. stroke of a pen, you know, it could totally deter your entire business plan. And so um, I know the marijuana uh, investors, they go through that. Um, Airbnb people crypto. Yeah. Yeah. So just thinking about how can the government or how can some external factor totally take this off the rails? And then some of it is also, hey, what are some of the red flags to look for in the operator? So, I will just read, I really, really like that story. It it definitely was a, a roller coaster one for me because something I haven't heard of people having to do. So, um, you know, but, yeah. So, tell us about you know anybody who's listening how they can get a hold of you and maybe who
1: should get in touch. Yeah. So, uh, if you just look up my name, Just Read Babesha on Google, you will find more than enough information, luckily enough, about me from my phone number to WhatsApp contacts, email addresses. Uh, so just reach out on LinkedIn. I think and that maybe the easiest and best way to get hold of me is just reach out on LinkedIn and we can talk about anything from limited partnership to JVs to multifamily syndications. And the one thing that's closest and dearest in, to my heart is private lending. That's what I've done about 300 transactions now. And so that is one space I feel like I understand more than anything else in the world. But yeah, it's, I'm open to a conversation to anyone who's interested to talk.
0: Awesome. So listen, we're going to put links to just Juspreet's profiles in the show notes. While you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies, link again in the show notes. Just breed, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Justin. Well, that's it for today's show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're looking to learn more about passive real estate investments, make sure you head to our show notes and download our free ebook, the definitive guide to passive real estate strategies, where we reveal the ins and outs of the truly passive ways to invest in real estate. We'll see you on the next episode.